0: Daniel chapter twelve. Uh, we're not going to make it real far this morning, but that's it's okay. Uh, there is uh, in Daniel chapter twelve in the first verse. There, there's really an unfortunate uh, break in the chapter because there isn't there. There really isn't a break in the original language. There's it's all one prophecy all from through Daniel chapter eleven all the way through the first several verses of Daniel chapter 12. And so we have to remember that those chapter breaks, those verses that are in scripture are not inspired, but they're really convenient. And so there they are. And sometimes we find that they separate things that ought not to be separated. And that's what we find. We're talking about the same prophecy in Daniel chapter 12 as we've been talking about in Daniel chapter 11. So a couple of the things that we find in there um maybe will you hit that Solly. thanks uh but we talked about in daniel chapter 11 uh, a world ruler and as we've talked through and studied through the book of daniel we looked at this uh, idea that the enemies of god come together and they sort of unite around a, a central person uh and that's the physical manifestation of this spiritual battle that is the reality. And that's, that's a key thing for us to understand. But there's a, a world ruler, one world ruler. There's going to be a world religion uh, that is forced upon us, whether it, you can choose it or you cannot choose it, but if you don't choose it, then you're going to be uh, persecuted at the least and put to death uh, is probably much more likely. And so we've talked about that as we went through Daniel chapter 11. Uh, there's also a lot of war happening in this period. There, is, there are those who are coming together and supporting of this new world order and, and governance and this new world religion. And there are those that over time, in accordance with God's will, will rise up against that, um, not necessarily on God's side, used by God to help sort of set the stage uh, for the last uh, week of Daniel, that 70th week. The other thing that we find is a uh, time of tribulation for Israel. Uh, I'll just remind you that, uh, I mean, apocalyptic literature, which is what this is, apocalyptic literature, is designed to encourage and to challenge so here's here's God challenging and encouraging the nation of Israel in particular. Now there are things for us to take away as believers, as the church, but we we have to realize that we don't replace Israel in any of this. We we are part of what's happening, uh, but we we don't replace Israel. And so what Daniel is is receiving in this prophecy is really interaction with the nation of israel this is their experience so to speak in the end time now there is a part of this that we and we won't get there this week that we end up being a little bit of a part of as the church and we're going to sort of set the stage for that a little bit Uh, but i want to be very clear that the church doesn't replace israel because there are some uh, bad theologies out there surrounding that idea and and that isn't isn't what it's about but here Daniel's receiving all of this stuff, some of it's history, some of it's already fulfilled, uh, up to about verse 35, and then we have this sudden shift forward uh, where we see this world ruler, uh, world religion, and world wars happening, and this is a time of great persecution and trouble for Israel. That's sort of where we kind of pick up this morning. Uh, The other things that we see are deliverance for God's people. At the end, there's deliverance for God's people, and I didn't say Israel. I said God's people, because there's a there's there's some distinction there, but the deliverance is ultimately the same. We find discussion about resurrection and judgment in Daniel chapter twelve in this same prophecy, and there's also the reward of the righteous. So the this this is kind of what Daniel eleven and into Daniel twelve is one of the most significant. end times uh, prophecies in scripture and and it encompasses a long period of time but ultimately it concludes with jesus's return jesus's victory jesus's uh reward of the righteous so that's kind of where we're at here now this prophecy is daniel's 70th week that's what it's talking about Uh, maybe it's broken it outlines daniel's 70th week and it and and it's i said an outline because it isn't in great detail we find more detail in revelation 6 through about 19 they're all same time period so this is an outline and it but it's substantial in that it uh in that it covers a broad period of time and it does so and we talked about this before with a lot of specificity is very specific very detailed in its prophecy which is part of the criticism that it receives as as a book of prophecy that it's so accurate that it had to have been written after the fact the problem is with that theory number one it doesn't it states that it was written and when it was written and secondly it's talking about things that are yet to happen there when you look at the the scale of the world wars and all those things happening a single uh, governmental structure a single world religion we don't find any of that fulfilled in the past that has never happened to the degree described in this prophecy anywhere in the world we can't, we have to conclude that it's something yet to come because it we, you can't look back in history and see it and so Daniel's seventieth week. We turn with me to Daniel chapter nine for just a moment. We kind of encounter that first there. Daniel chapter nine, uh, verses twenty six through twenty seven, <clears throat> says, "And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off." Now, just remember that those weeks that are being discussed, those are years, uh, and we we covered that when we went through Daniel chapter nine. But that's that's the idea. So threescore and two weeks uh, shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and under the end of the war, desolations are determined. And he, that's the, the prince that shall come, shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So we have this prince that is coming. We have this world ruler that is coming, and he's going to establish a covenant at some point, period of relative peace. But that gets reneged on, and it's very clear that here is Israel. At some point, the temple is rebuilt in this timeline. I'm convinced it's one of the early markers of this 70th week, uh, though we don't necessarily read that in Scripture, but it has to have been rebuilt because what happens is Israel resumes their worship and their sacrifice. But after three and a half years, in the middle of that last week, this covenant is broken. and They're, they're not allowed. And in fact, as we read about Uh, this world ruler, the Antichrist, as he comes in uh, to Jerusalem and as he establishes that temple as his own sanctuary, as it were, and fills it with idols, makes that abomination that makes desolate. All of that ceases. That's reneged upon. That covenant is broken. We have what's referred to, as you read through, End times commentaries and things like that. The end, the time of the end, and we we find it here. Uh, it's sort of the context of what we're talking about from Daniel chapter eleven verse forty it says, and at the time of the end shall the kings of the south push at him. Okay, so there is this time at the end, and and it's a three and a half year period that immediately precedes the coming of Jesus Christ. And it's initiated at that abomination that makes desolate, when the temple is desecrated. That's a three-and-a-half-year span. The middle of these weeks, uh, it's synonymous. This, this time of the end is synonymous with the Jacob's trouble that we read about in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. Uh, and the great tribulation that we read about in Matthew chapter twenty-four, verse twenty-one, as Jesus is talking about what's going to happen. It's the same event. It's the same period of time. Okay. So if we have a basic timeline, if I can just well, let's look at a few verses here. Daniel chapter seven, verse twenty-five. In Daniel chapter seven, we're we're being acquainted with some beasts. Uh, which we find several of here in the book of Daniel. Uh, we obviously covered that and we obviously discussed that those beasts are representative of kingdoms, of of nations, of rulers. And in Daniel chapter seven verse twenty five, we have uh, the fourth beast, this which is representative of um, Antichrist as a person, but he being the greater the uh, just sort of the head of this coalescence or this coming together of the enemies of God. It says, and he shall speak great words against the most high and shall swear, shall wear out the saints of the most high and think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. So time, times, and the dividing of time, that's that three and a half year period. If a week. And I realize that all these numbers and things, they don't always mesh together and fit. But when we're talking about the same period of time, we find this exact verbiage used throughout Old and New Testament. We can even get more specific as we progress, but look with me in Daniel chapter 12. We're not going to get there this morning, but uh, as Daniel sees this vision, part of what ends up happening, we'll cover this when we get to verse 7, is this discussion about when is this going to happen. And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto the heaven, and swear by him that lives forever, that it shall be for a time, times and a half. So there's this three and a half year period that is being discussed again. And then if we jump to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. And we look at verse 5. And this is very specific. This is speaking about uh, <clears throat> the beast. And we, we looked at this when we were in Daniel chapter 7, I believe. M- maybe rehashed a little bit of it in Daniel chapter 9 as we're looking at that fourth beast, that fourth kingdom that comes. Uh, it is headed, so to speak, by the Antichrist. Revelation 13, 5, and there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue 42 months. 42 months, three and a half years. And it doesn't matter if you have a 360-day calendar, sort of like the Jews did, and then they would insert their leap month here and there as necessary, or even 365 day. It's so close. I mean, one's like 3.5, one's like 3.0. I don't know, you can do the math but it's three and a half years, okay? We have this period, this last time of the end, and it's described as a three and a half year period, and it's the period of time immediately preceding Jesus' return. So if we look at a rough timeline uh, of what's happening in this 70th week, we have the rise of a one world leader and religion, all of that being the manifestation of the coming together of the enemies of God, We have a covenant between Israel and the Antichrist. And at some point as part of that covenant, the temple is rebuilt. Don't know when that happens, but at some point it does. And then we have three and a half years that pass. And it's sort of a tedious piece. I wouldn't say reading through Daniel chapter 11 that it's extremely peaceful. There's a lot of angst and, and persecution. And there's a lot of things happening. But it's a relative time of peace. If you're on that side, if you're with the Antichrist, if you're with uh, this world religion, if you're with this one world governance, then you're probably going to be okay. If you're not, you're probably going to be put to death. And then we have the abomination of desolation that Jesus is looking forward to in Matthew 24, verse 15, something yet coming, and that initiates what's known as the Great Tribulation. That's this three-and-a-half-year period of persecution for Israel. And it's a heavy persecution for Israel. And at the end of that three-and-a-half-year tribulation, we have the return of Christ. That's when He comes back. That's when He swoops in, as it were, and destroys enemies. And we read about that in in Daniel 11.45. Uh, as it talks about the, the Antichrist, he shall plant the tabernacle of his palace between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. In other words, no one can. If God is for you, who can be against you? Who can stand against the omnipotent, omniscient creator of the universe? And it's a rhetorical question because no one and nothing can. So this is Daniel's 70th week. That's what's being described in this prophecy. This is what is happening in that last little bit of history before Jesus' return. Now, I want to make this clear that when we read through this prophecy from Daniel 11 through Daniel chapter 12, the first four verses, that this is concurrent. This is not a sequential thing that is happening. Uh, and, And what I mean by that is that Uh, the chronology, we we don't have everything that's described in this world war and everything that is happening in the end of chapter 11, and then we pick up with the great tribulation in Daniel chapter 12. It's concurrent. They're happening at the same time. In fact, this world war uh, would probably be part of the persecution and the hardship, part of the great tribulation that Israel endures. So at that time that we read about here in verse 1, and let's just read verse 1. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the people, the children of thy people. So we have this clear reference. Daniel is Jewish. This is talking about the Jews, thy people, Daniel. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to the same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered. Everyone that shall be found written in the book. Okay. At the time refers to the same context, like we said in, in Revelation, excuse me, not Revelation, Daniel chapter 11, verse 40, the end of time. At the end of the time. The events that are described in, in where we're continuing through here are happening concurrently, they're side by side, they're all happening at the same time. Happening at the same time. And sometimes when we read through prophecies, because part of apocalyptic literature is metaphor and and, uh, poetic license, so to speak, Uh, and part of what we find in Hebrew poetry is parallelism. And so we have one thing being described, and then we have another section where the same thing is being described, but two different perspectives. And we find that parallelism happening here in daniel but it's the same events it's the same time period it's the same seven year period and then ultimately the same last three and a half years of that seven year period and i just want to make that clear because we have to understand this if you go look at a timeline we don't want to be confused if we are trying to you know just wrap our heads around visually what happens in this last seven years it's not going to be world ruler, establishing one world religion, rebellion against that, world war, the Antichrist is defeated, and then a time of trouble for Israel. That doesn't, that's not, what, it's not what's being described. We can't miss the parallelism. It's the same period of time. So, um, <clears throat> just throwing that out there to make it abundantly clear. Uh, this is all concurrent. Now, Let's talk about Israel in the midst of all this. Because there is a period of refinement for Israel in this seven years. God refines Israel in the great tribulation. As they experience persecution in the three and a half years preceding Jesus' return. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 13. Zechariah 13, and let's read the last two verses of this chapter. Now, in this chapter, we have uh, God is talking about um, idolatry and dealing with uh, Israel's spiritual adultery. They're leaving him behind, and so that's what's being discussed. And when we get into the last few verses here, uh, not only do we have some prophecy regarding Jesus Christ, uh, as we read in verse seven, uh, spite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. there's There's some reference there to Christ, uh, but as w- verses eight and nine, and it shall come to pass that in all the land saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people, and they shall say, the Lord is my God. So a couple of things. In Israel, right, we have this hardship, we have this persecution, and one of the things that is happening is part of refinement, as Jesus talks about it, and, and it's, it's not, I'm just going to use it as an illustration, it is not what Jesus is talking about. He's maybe in the next of verse, but Jesus talks about separating the sheep and the goats on Judgment Day which this is not talking about Judgment Day necessarily, but what it's talking about is God's refining. Here are those who will be faithful, and here are those who will not be faithful. And I'm going to separate them. And this hardship, this great tribulation, is a mechanism that God uses us to do that. And in fact, if we look at church history, God has used persecution throughout the history of the church to separate out those who are really His and those who are His in name only. So God is going to separate those that are faithful from those who are not faithful. You see that in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, well, I'm going to get ahead of myself, but we're going to come back to that. In addition to that, separation, he says that Third, so the smaller part of them are His, are, uh, if I can use that, real Israel, faithful Jews, those who are by faith trusting God for everything that He's promised them. It's the smaller part of them. It's the one-third. And then that one-third experiences refinement. Just as gold goes into the into the smelting pot, into the crucible and it's put into the fire and the impurities float to the top and are skimmed off. That's exactly what's happening. Now we read about similar things that God would allow or bring about in our life that would refine us. And we find his motivation in Hebrews chapter 12, if you'll turn there with me for a moment, because his motivation is... The same with Israel is, is with us. And we're going to make a distinction here in a minute, and I'm going to get ahead of myself just by way of clarity, to, to hopefully make it more clear. But he talks about those who are written in the book. Okay, You and I as believers are written in the same book as the book that is referenced in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Those are God's people. Those are God's people. They're written in that book. And we're going to talk about that here in just a little while. But but God, it says in the book of Ephesians that He has taken down the middle wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. God has one people. And ultimately, God has always had one people. Those who trust him, whether you're out, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, that's how God has always had. He's had one people. Now, Israel has a special place in God's economy, so to speak, because They are His example to the world around us. They are the example that God has given us of how He is going to redeem mankind. Not only that, but the promise of redemption comes through that lineage. So there's a special place for them, and they have received special promises that are unique just to Israel. Some of those promises are not unique to Israel. And we as believers are adopted into that same family. We're brought into that same tree. Remember in Romans chapter 11, when we were discussing Romans 11, and we have this picture that, of the being grafted in. There's only one tree. There's one root. But there are branches grafted in to that tree. Gentiles, and that's what's being discussed. Gentiles brought into the household of faith. that were previously not of that household of faith. And in fact, some of those branches were removed from that tree so that there was room for those Gentiles. Now, obviously, it's an imperfect picture, but God is trying to convey to you and I that there is one household of faith, one people of God, and it's those that are there by faith. So when we look at the motivation of God in refining his people, the motivation is the same. So as we look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 6, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as children. My son, despise thou not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. God in his love for you and I is not going to leave us where we are at. He's going to refine us. He's going to mold us into the image of his son. And if that takes hardship, if it takes something substantive like Israel is going to go through, that's what it takes. And God is willing in His love for you and I to allow it for our best. We know that all things work together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. Even those hard things, God is in the business of redemption and has been from the very, very beginning And that's what the story of Scripture is all about. God redeeming mankind, God redeeming creation, God redeeming you and I as individuals and molding us in the image of His Son, refining us. Turns me to Proverbs chapter 17. Proverbs 17, verse 3 says, The fining pot or the refining pot, that's the vessel that goes into the fire, having the material in it that is going to be refined. The fining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord trieth the hearts. In other words, remember that parallelism that I talked about earlier? God is talking about refining metals and then we have God trying the hearts. He's seeing what is in the heart. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. God is looking at the heart. God is going to refine the heart as we've talked about in the last several weeks on Thursday nights about repentance. It's a great example of God's refinement. Because here's the word of God. This is what it says. And as we grow in the Lord, as we experience more and more and come to a better understanding, as we are submitted to the Spirit and, and His instruction of truth and righteousness and of judgment, we are inevitably going to be confronted with things that we have misunderstood or that we didn't get right when we first looked at that in Scripture. And so God deals with that. He reveals it to us, right? He tries our heart in that matter. And as a result, we can, we respond to that. We repent of that misunderstanding. We turn toward the truth. It's exactly what God is looking at here. He's trying the heart. What is in our heart? What is our understanding? Where do we stand before Him? And He's more as concerned with the state of our heart and that associated fruit than He is with our physical comfort. go to 2 Timothy, chapter 2. 2 Timothy, chapter 2. Let's look at uh, verses 14 through 21. Now, this is Paul, and he's, as he writes to Timothy, this young pastor, he tells him, this is what I want you to do. This is something that we need to be instructing in. Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Okay, so what is happening? We have this strife and this angst, this division within the body of Christ over minutia, little tiny details. The striving over words don't bring about uh, any profit. But what they do is subvert, they separate the hearers. Verse 15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. In other words, he's saying, listen, be like those Bereans who would study the word of God for themselves. We don't need to spend our entire Sunday school or our entire uh, Sunday morning, uh, to put it in a modern vernacular, talking about and discussing these little minutiae is that should be what you're doing you're studying yourself to show yourself approved so that the foundation is laid. verse 16 but shun profane and vain babblings for they will increase unto more ungodliness and the world uh, and and their word will eat as does a canker of whom is hymenaeus and philetus who concerning the truth have erred saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. So you have weird doctrines creeping in. And ultimately what's happening is because they are unaware of truth, because they are not those approved workmen who have done the work. They haven't studied to see what the word says. There are those who are being led away. And he gives two examples, Hymenaeus and Philetus. these two guys. And what they're teaching, the heresy that they're teaching, is that the resurrection has already happened. The resurrection's already happened. And it's an interesting discussion. And the reason I say that in the context that we're looking at in Daniel, there are those who would corrupt the understanding, and we're going to get to this next week, of the resurrection. It becomes a substantial point of contention amongst eschatological scholars. What does the Bible say? That's really what we want to know. Nevertheless, he says in verse 19, the foundation of God stands sure having this seal. The Lord knows them that are his and let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So listen, God God is telling you and I that there are those who are dividing. There are those who are going to espouse bad doctrine. God knows if they're his or not. You and I may not ever know in this life, People can earnestly be deceived. God knows who are His. But the foundation of God, His truth, stands sure. It doesn't matter if somebody says this about it, or if somebody says that about it. What it says is what it says. And it's unchanging, because, d- despite interpretation. Okay? One of the things that that people talk about in regard to um, evolution or science being a mechanism of interpreting Scripture. And uh, this is new to most of you, but by way of illustration, right? We couldn't have understood Scripture, if that was true, until we got to modern science. We needed new revealed knowledge and when we put it in that those kinds of terms, it, it, it opens our eyes to what's being said there. I'm not standing on the authority of God's word. I'm standing upon the authority of something else to interpret God's word. When God tells us himself, listen, the spirit is going to lead us in truth. In fact, he says you don't need any, any man to teach you because the spirit himself is going to teach you. The foundation of God stands sure. It's unchanging. It's independent of what is out there. And what we find out there, the truth that we encounter in the world around us, is true because the Word of God is true, not the other way around. The, other, the Word of God doesn't become true because we find truth. It is truth. By word is truth, Jesus would say in John seventeen seven. It says, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. <clears throat> If a man therefore purge himself of these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. Second Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verses three through five. This is where we discuss that, listen, that the, the we're in a spiritual battle. And because we're in a spiritual battle, the, the, the methods and the means of our warfare are not carnal but spiritual. And they're mighty to the tearing down of strongholds as we take every thought captive to the mind of Christ. Right? In other words, we're thinking about things the way that God thinks about things. Why? Because we're understanding of his word. The refinement that is being discussed here. So there are vessels in a house of gold and silver and of wood and earth. Now, he didn't say that the ones of wood and earth are of less value. They just have a different purpose. Some to honor, some to dishonor. In other words, um, the fine china and the utilitarian wear. That's, that's what's being discussed here. He's not talking about salvation. He's not talking about those who are, who are being condemned for uh, you know, just being born. Uh, he's, talking, he's talking about those their purpose for which he has created them. If any man therefore purge himself from these, and there's reference all the way back up to... Um, well, further back in the context, i just have to let you go find that. He shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified. In other words, set apart and meet appropriate for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. So as God refines us, as he uh, molds us into the image of Christ, we become a vessel that is fit for his use. Now, that use may be different for some. It may be uh, somebody being called to the far reaches of the world to be a missionary somewhere, and, and we might look at that and think, oh, man, that's really a, a gold, golden cup. Who knows? You know I mean? That's, that's really the good stuff, the fine china. Or we may be somebody who uh, is called to a particular vocation, and in that vocation where God has planted them, it is a very uh, gospel, uh, needy venue, and while they're there, they're able to share the gospel. And, and we look at that and we may somehow perceive it as something less, some utilitarian kind of where they're doing exactly the same thing. The point is that God puts them where they need to be because he is working in them his plan and purpose. And he's using them to work the plan, his plan and purpose for those around them. But they're refined. They're being set apart to the task that God has called them to. They're being uh, cleaned, as it were, and furnished unto every good work as they are refined through the process of hardship, through the process of, of study, through the Word of God, as truth uh, goes in and takes root. First Peter chapter one, for just a moment, if you will. First Peter chapter one. Verses 3 through 9. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein we greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. So this audience that is being uh, spoken to by the, the Apostle Peter here is suffering for whatever reasons. They're, they are having manifold temptations, trials and hardships. That's what it means. That's what's being discussed. But he says, we greatly rejoice, even if for now, for a season, this period of life, and for Israel, it's going to be a very long period, so to speak. But And for you and I, it may be who who knows how long of a period. The the length of the period doesn't matter. We know that it is a season, and we know that it is God's work in our heart and mind, just as as it is for Israel. And he concludes this in verse 7 that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than that of, than of gold that perishes, though be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, and whom uh, though now you see him not, you believing, yet believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. He says in verse 5 that we are kept by the power of God. Now, that word kept it, and I think we talked about this when we studied through uh, this, this book, 1 Peter, it means garrison. In other words, you're, and it's a military term that here is God guarding you and I. We are kept by God <clears throat> through the power of God, through faith, unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Uh, <clears throat> Now, and and it's in the present perfect tense, which simply means, uh, for those of us who are, including me, who are not Greek experts, it means that God is continually keeping us. So we have this assurance, right, that we are His, and, and how is that happening? Well, it's by faith. God, kept by the power of God, through faith, unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein we greatly rejoice, Where we greatly rejoice. That the trial of your faith being more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire. So it's a high quality, it's refined. It isn't, uh, you know, like eight karat gold, the rough stuff. It's the 24 karat gold, the very highly refined. And though it's refined, though it's the good stuff, he says, listen, the trying of your faith is more valuable it's more valuable it's more precious hardship trials tribulations manifold temptations all of those things that are being discussed here god tells you and i are more valuable more precious than refined gold Israel goes through this period of refinement, where God separates out those who are not really His, who are they're generational Jews. I'm a Jew by descent, but I'm not a Jew by faith. I don't trust the Lord. And he separates them out first and we find that the vast majority, two-thirds of them fall into that category. And then the last third, those who are refined, those who are, Uh, excuse me, faithful, are refined. They're molded into the image of Christ. They're brought through this process of of removing their misunderstandings, taking every thought captive to the mind of Christ, being yielded to the Spirit and to the truth of God's Word. He tells you and I that those who are uh, in that one-third are those who are in the book of life in there? Excuse me. Says so just written in the book. Okay. Now, not all Israel is God's Israel, and we talked about this. If we if we jump over to Romans eleven for just a moment. Romans eleven. Let's look at verse twenty. First, Romans eleven twenty. <clears throat> this is where we're talking about this grafting. He says, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And thou standest by faith, be not high-minded, but fear. The the ultimate thing that we have to realize here is is exactly what it says. That those who were removed, those who were taken out of the, the, off the tree of faith, so to speak, those are the ones who didn't believe. They're generational Jews, but they don't trust God. They're not living in faith. They would be analogous to the 12, uh, to, to the 10 spies who didn't trust God. And those who were faithful would be analogous to Joshua and Caleb. Even though there were giants in the land, even though there were hardships to be overcome, they knew that God was with them. And they were eager to go in in obedience and follow God's word to take the land. If we jump down to verse 25 in Hebrews 11, 25 and 26, "...for I would not, brethren, that you would be ignorant of this mystery," lest you would be wise in your own conceits that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Well, listen, all Israel isn't every Jew. All Israel are those who are faithful. That's what's being discussed here. We talked about this when we, when we looked in Romans chapter 11, when we studied through that. Not all, of, not all of Israel, not every Jew is God's people. And salvation is by faith. And that's been, that, that, think about this, right? In Numbers chapter 21, we find the fiery serpent. We find that illustrated. Not only was Abraham's faith counted in him as righteousness, but we see this clear picture of the fiery serpents. And here are the people grumbling again, and God sends in these fiery serpents, and when they're bit, they die this painful death. And they go to Moses to say, Moses, listen, we need you to to seek God on our behalf, ultimately. What are we going to do? And God tells Moses, listen, make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and set it on the hill, and whoever looks at it, Numbers 21, 8, whoever looks at it will be healed. They didn't have to go and touch it. They didn't have to to present themselves before the priest. All they had to do was look at it. All they had to do was exercise the faith that God had said, this is all it takes. And they'll be healed. You'll be saved. In John chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, Jesus, as he's talking to Nicodemus, picks up this same idea. And he says, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And he says in verse 15 of John chapter 3, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is the idea. This is the picture that God is painting for you and I. Yielded from the refinement of those who are faithful, those who trust God, are those who are written in the book of life those who are truly gods. And this isn't some generational thing. This is by faith, as it has always been. Now, we find the book of life. This isn't... When we talk about the book of life, people go to Revelation. We're going to go to Revelation. That's not the first place we find it. The first place that we find the book of life discusses in Exodus chapter 32. Let's turn there and look at it for just a moment. Exodus chapter 32. And when we talk about the book of life, right, this is the book that God writes everybody's name in who has eternal life. That's the idea. When you come to faith, In Jesus Christ, when you are saved by grace through faith, your name goes in the book. And there it is. It's in the book. Exodus chapter 32, let's look at verses 32 through 33. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. And the Lord said unto Moses, whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Now. This is when Moses is up on the mountain and they make the golden calf and, and that, that's the circumstance here. And God is fed up. I, you know, I, I'm going to humanize God a little bit in that statement, but he's really fed up. And he says, listen, Moses, I'm going to start over with you. And Moses intercedes on their behalf. And, this, and what he says, if thou will forgive their sin, if you will, or forgive them. And he's interceding on their, their behalf. And he says, and if not, blot me, I pray thee out of thy book, which thou hast written. Moses intercedes on, for the, on behalf of the people and says, listen, Lord, if you're not going to save them, then take me out of your book. Which is a very bold statement when you're talking to God, when you're talking to who, who is just, when you're talking to who is uh, fully gracious, who has done everything necessary to deliver this people out of bondage in Egypt. As he's protected them and led them in the wilderness, as he's prepared dry land for them to walk through on the dry, through the Red Sea, and destroyed Pharaoh's armies that were pursuing them in the middle of that. And yet, for just a few days, they can't escape their idolatry. While Moses goes up and gets the Ten Commandments that we just said a few chapters earlier We'll do whatever you want us to do. Whatever covenant you want to establish with us in Exodus 19, Lord, we're in. Whatever you ask, we will do. And yet before Moses comes back down with the take of Ammon, they've fallen into idolatry. So we have this reference to this book, this record of those who are in the book, those who are God's people. That's the first place that we find it inferred or referenced. It's the first place that we encounter it. One of the last places that we encounter it is in Revelation chapter 20. Now, Revelation chapter 20, this lays some foundation for us to to progress to next week because next week we're going to talk about the resurrection. But in Revelation chapter 20, uh, verses 12 through 15, I saw, and this is talking about the resurrection. It's talking about the final judgment. This is what's happening. And God said, and I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. Okay, so we have, we have at least two books and probably more than two books. But we have the book of life, which is separate and distinct from the other book. And I don't know if there's more than one book because there's just not enough room for all the stuff that we did. But there it is, right? There's a record of the things that we've done. And then there's the book of life. And it says, those who are dead are judged out of the books. Those who are dead. As many as receive him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. And when we become the sons of God, when we're adopted in that family, we are saved. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There's no reference to death any longer. Oh, death, where is your sting? We read in 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, So those who are dead, those who are separated from Christ are judged out of these books. This is where it becomes abundantly obvious that whatever righteousnesses I thought I had are nowhere near enough. And those who are Christ, those who are in the book of life, aren't judged out of the other books. We're not dead. We're alive. He goes on, verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. This is it. This is every man, woman, and child who has ever lived standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And you can imagine, if you, if you look at this from a, from a human perspective, right? Uh, I mean, I'm sure this happens in an instant. God in His power does whatever happens. But as we, as we approach the bench, so to speak, it's our turn, and we go forward, and you can see the circumstance, what's happening here. There's these books laid out, and the first thing that happens is there's a verification, are you in the book of life or no? Because if you're in the book of life, we're done. And then you can imagine, you know, well, look them up in these other books, we got to find the guy's name, and, and here's all the stuff you give an account for every idle word that we speak. There it is. We are judged by our works. But when we talk about our works, God says in Isaiah, right, that all of our works are as filthy rags. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. The only book that we have to really worry about is the book of life. Are we there or not? And the death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. second death becomes a key component to our understanding of the resurrection. Uh, Just a little teaser for next week, but he says, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. We talk about, we don't talk about it. Man's default position is separated from God. We are not born with our name written in the book of life, and we just read that the default position—that if you're not in the book of life, then the default eternal destiny for you is the lake of fire. And I don't know if you caught that or not, but those who are in verse thirteen, the sea gives up its dead, and death and hell. Deliver up the dead that are there, right? When God, when Jesus is talking about the rich man and the and the beggar Lazarus, and he gives that picture of the the rich man goes to hell and Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom, this place of paradise. Now that place, I think I'm convinced today is empty, because Jesus has done everything necessary now for them to be in God's presence. Okay, but hell is not empty. And it's so, uh, you, you, you look at the description there, this guy, he, he wants his brothers to escape it. He doesn't want anybody else to go there, so much so that he begs that they would send somebody up there to talk to him. And to, you know Abraham's response is, listen, if they won't listen to the prophets, if they won't look at the word of God, if they won't listen to what God has already said, it doesn't matter if somebody comes back from the dead or not. But the torment that this man is in is he's over here and he's just... He begs, you know, just let him bring one drip of water across his chasm and just drop it in my mouth. As bad as that is, as bad as it is, it gets worse. Because hell and the lake of fire are not the same place. Clearly, they're not the same place. I- I, I don't know how bad it gets, but it's the lake of fire. It sounds pretty bad. But that's man's default position. That's where we're at when we're born. And we know that because our kids, we didn't teach them to sin yet. here they are. Nobody taught me to sin when I was a child, yet there I was sinning And we realize at some point that, Boy, I've dropped the ball here. And we may try on our own efforts and our own uh, power and ability to stack righteousnesses up, to, to somehow merit favor with God, to be noticeable to Him, to, to somehow appease Him. But when we open up the books that are there, we're looking at the works that are happening. We're not looking at them from our perspective. We're looking at them and they're judged from God's perspective who, as we read earlier, tries the heart. Why are you doing this? Even if our effort is to be appeasable to God, it is a selfish motivation. They don't measure up. They don't stack up. Nothing's hopelessness. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter, uh, chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. I want to read two verses here. We're getting near wrapping up here. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And as it is appointed unto men once to die... But after this, the judgment. There isn't a second chance. There isn't a second chance. We get one go around. We don't get to come back and try again later. We don't become reincarnated. We don't somehow get a second chance in a spirit life after this one. It's appointed unto man to die once and then judgment. Are you in the book of life or are you out of the book of life? Because that's ultimately the only judgment that we have to worry about. He continues on, though, in verse 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So here is this description. Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, to be the substitute, to be the object of God's wrath for all sin throughout all time on the cross. Providing the way for you and I, by faith, to be reconciled with God, have our sin dealt with, completely removed from us. As we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he was made sin so that we could be made his righteousness. Man has a default position, but God didn't leave us hopeless. He gave us the hope of Jesus Christ, his son. John three seventeen. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That is hope. That is good news. And if in the midst of all of this hardship and suffering that we may experience in our life, we get to be the witness to the world around us that God is still for us, he hasn't left us, he hasn't forsaken us, he is trustworthy, he is in the midst of all of this refining me into the image of his son and we give praise and thanks for what he is doing in us and around us rather than woe is me and live in despair and and agony that everything's not going my way we don't replace israel and they're going to go through a very difficult time but the refinement that happens to israel happens to believers as well That God in the midst of that would bring about in us the peaceable fruit of righteousness as we submit ourselves to the plans and purposes that He has for us. As He refines us and sets us aside for the use that He has for you or for me. As we humble ourselves before the Lord and we receive grace as a result of that. God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. as we read in hebrews chapter 12 let us have grace that we might serve him acceptably one of the big points in in daniel and we haven't hit it particularly well is personal righteousness personal holiness god said be ye holy even as i am holy now we realize that's Really, it's an impossibility apart from Christ. It's an impossibility, and even with Christ, it's going to come with the need for refinement, it's going to come with the need for those impurities to be removed, it's going to come with the need of our repentance. And are taking every thought captive to the mind of Christ. And beginning to think and look at things the way God looks at them. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to come and open your word. And I pray, Lord, that as we uh, have time to study as we have time to be together and to to just partake of your word, Lord, that you would uh, take the truths that are there and use them, Lord to establish us in truth. that they would be a part of the refinement Lord that you have in mind for every one of us, that we might be those who are established. just as your word says, Lord that that it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. I pray, Lord, that we would accept the purpose and the plan that you have for each one of us, whatever it may be. And God, that we would walk in submission to that plan and purpose. And Lord, as we encounter things in our lives that are you, Lord, are using as instruments of your love and correction towards us to shape us into the image of your Son. Lord, would you extend to us grace that we might understand, that we might grow, that we might put off those things, Lord, that are unglorifying to you. That we might represent you to the world around us as your ambassadors. That we might take the message of reconciliation to heart, in such a way, Lord, that we would speak it to the world around us, in word and in deed. We praise you, Lord, and we thank you that so we have opportunity to worship and, and to ascribe adoration, Lord, to who you are and for what you've done, God. We pray that you would receive it as our offering. In Jesus' name, amen.